The Athletic. And welcome to the Athletic Women's Football Podcast. Coming up, Park runs off the bench and onto the score sheet. The African Women's Champions League reaches as far as the final. And can Spurs bridge the gap when they take on Chelsea this weekend? It's Matt Davis-Adams here, standing in for Lindsay. With me today, former Lioness Rachel Yankee. Hi, Rachel. Hi, yeah, you're right. I am good, thank you. The Athletic Charlotte Harper's also with us. How are you doing, Charlotte? Hello, Matt. I'm good, thank you. How are you? Uh, really well. Looking forward to filling in today. Um, if you're an African footballer or an acronym enthusiast, make sure you stick around for our CAFWCL chat later. But first, let's talk Lionesses. Picked up by Salmon. Can England put icing on the cake tonight? Oh, they can! Just seconds after coming on. What a moment for Jess Park on debut. The fourth goal for England. So a thumping win for England against Japan in Friday's friendly in Spain. Serena Wiegmann forced to mix things up because of several key absentees. But guess what? The squad is stacked with quality in every position. So it didn't matter. A 4-0 win featured a goal from right back for the night, Rachel Daly. Chloe Kelly's first since that one. An Ella Toon strike and a debut goal for Jess Park. Charlotte, that that strength in depth I mentioned was something you highlighted in your post-match piece for The Athletic. Neve Charles in particular stood out to you. Yes, uh, Neve Charles getting her first England start. But uh, I was really interested because Lucy Bronze was unavailable. And so she's played the last nine games for England at right back. And Serena Wiegmann just shuffled the pack, put uh, Rachel Daly at right back, and then Charles came in as left back. And it kind of just seemed that even though we didn't have Leah Williamson, Alex Greenwood or Lucy Bronze, very secure, uh, thanks to that strength and depth going into World Cup preparations. I feel as though who starts a midfield and attack is pretty secure at the moment. So nailing that defensive side is more important after the Euros, in my opinion. Uh, Rachel, any Aluko on, on telly was pointing out that the England squad used to feel like a bit of a closed shot, but, but it's not the case under Serena Wiegmann, which was kind of evidenced by the young players here. But that is in contrast to the fact that at the Euros, we saw the same team for every game, didn't we? So, so maybe is she doing this because her hand was forced in this case or is she actually using these kind of games to get a look at players who she might need to rely on come the World Cup? Yeah, I think every manager in these games that... Ultimately, players, they always want to play in every game and you want to win every game, but these games don't really mean anything. So it's a chance to to have a look at the whole squad, to get a real good look at, at players and, and people's character and what they can do on the pitch. So uh, I think any manager would, obviously she was forced that she had to shuffle, but I think any manager would, would want to sort of tinker with their squad and find out a little bit more about their players before going into, you know, a massive uh, World Cup, which which the team are going to go into. Yeah, might need a bit of versatility for that. Rachel Daly sure has that in her locker. She made it 1-0 seven minutes before half-time. Doesn't really matter what side she plays on, it seems, Charlotte. But it's such a big benefit, isn't it? If, you, if you're going to play the kind of game that will get 
full backs, wing backs forward like that. If you've got one of them who can finish and is used to doing that, that's a, that's a massive bonus for a team. Yeah, Rachel Daly. <laughs> Get her up in a centre forward. And, you know, Viegman has said that she hasn't ruled out that possibility. But we've always known that Daly's strength is her versatility. But great finish, super finish. And also Chloe Kelly, what a finish as she came up. There's a second centre forward there coming in with that left foot as well. You know, you've seen the crosses from the with her right foot and then bangs in one like that with her left. That was, I like that one. It's good to see. Yeah, and probably something that she needed given that she hadn't scored yet this season. Just on daily from a, from a player's perspective, Rachel, I guess, you know, the stock answer will be, oh, she's just happy to play regardless of, of where it is. And, you know, she's got a European Championship winner's medal out of doing that. But but realistically, would she rather be playing up front for England? Um, <laughs> that's a good question, which I'm sure that only she can probably answer. And um, I think for me, remembering her when she played, and I think that she would, I'm guessing here a little, but She's she's a centre forward. I think she wants to play up front, but she's been given an opportunity to 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 be part of the team and to to play. She's good enough that she can pretty much play anywhere on that pitch. So if you're that sort of player, then you know you take the opportunity um, and and you play wherever you're put. But um, I think if she got the opportunity to to play up front as that centre forward and felt that you know she was trusted in that position, I'm sure she relished that, and I'm sure you you. you You'd, yes, you'd see the same animal, but I, I'm sure you see a much more determined one up there to prove a point that that she could be England's number nine. And I guess, Charlotte, I mean, we're talking about the strength and depth that England have here, but one concern would be, you know, if Alessia Russo was injured, have England got a, a tried and tested number nine second option? Obviously, Beth and England didn't get any minutes in the Euros, but they do have daily there as a fallback option, you know, if they needed to. It's not like chucking on a defender up front for the last 10 minutes when you're desperate for a goal, is it? You're actually putting a specialist in that position. So that kind of doubly justifies her place within this group. I wrote about this earlier uh, in the previous international window as, you know, Alessia Russo uh, was out injured and during the Euros we had Ellen White. Of course, she's retired now. So who have we got? Beth Mead hasn't been ruled out as a number nine option either. We've got her on the wing uh, at the moment. Uh, Rachel Daly as well. Ebony Salmon. I mean, real impact sub against Japan on Friday the way that oh, the disguise with the pass was beautiful. And then to muscle the Japan defender off the ball and fight in the kind of added minutes to set up Jess Park was really impressive. So, yeah, you know, Viegman has options. It's a, it's a nice, as we say, a nice headache to have. The other one that you just wouldn't want to miss is Kira Walsh because she is irreplaceable and that would be a real blow of anything to happen to Walsh in terms of our vulnerability in midfield. On Ebony Salmon, Rachel, this was really crucial for her, wasn't it? To actually get involved, you know, she's obviously got to do a lot of travelling to get onto England duty for one thing, but having been on the fringes and not had any action so far, to come on and impact the game will be um, will be really important for her confidence and, and give her belief that she belongs with this group going forward. Yeah, definitely. I, I thought she played really well. I thought, I think, you know... Going back to Charlotte's point on on the on the strikers, I think you probably add in Nikita there. You could also add in Lauren James. I think there's loads of options, and the, and the beauty of it is that they're all different. And I think Ebony Salmon gives you something di- different up there. Her pace is ridiculous. I mean, you saw that 
how she pressed, uh, how she won the ball and pressed uh, the Japanese back line and, uh, you know, created the, I think it was uh, Park's goal. So, yeah, for me, there's loads of different options. She, she's, again, another player that's got an opportunity. You know, she's, she's put on there and I think she played well. She's done herself no harm um, in the performance that she gave. I just hope that, you know, maybe in the next match, get some more minutes, get longer time. Coming on as a sub is always different to, to when you're starting. So I kind of like to see some of those fringe players actually start a game and, and see, see what they've got from the off. Well, we see if Jess Park starts um, the next friendly this week. But Charlotte, I guess there's half a temptation from her point of view to just retire from international football now. Had a 100% <laughs> record, one game, one goal, easy. <laughs> Two touches, She'll, all she needs. Uh, no, great. Um, I think Beekman said, well, I didn't really see her play that much <laughs> on the pitch. But, um, you know, Jess Park, you, you have to think beyond the World Cup. We've got an Olympics and a Euros coming up as well. And and Beekman knows that it's the culture within the camp. And I'm sure Yanks can talk about us call up to England and what it's like and your kind of first days and experiences of just being in and around the team, which which is really, really important for the young players coming forward. What about playing it out from the back? Does that make you a bit nervous when England do it, Rachel? I mean, I know that this is something that pretty much every football team these days do. Do they rely on it a bit too much? Should they should they change it up a little bit every so often? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of modern game of football now, isn't it? I think rather than, you know, do, do I get scared watching it? I just think people need to be better at executing the passing and you're going to get better by practising it more, by doing it more, by receiving the ball under pressure. So... I think if that's the way that you want to play, you know, you have to take the risk to, to, to be able to get, get the reward. So, you know, you have to be brave enough to, to continue to do it. So, um, you know, if that's, if that's the way England are saying, look, this is, this is our style, this is the way we want to play, we see that this will, you know, get us more gains in the game, then they just have to execute it better. Um, they just have to just make sure that they're brave on the ball and, and reactive if something does go wrong. Practice makes perfect. <laughs> if you haven't read the interview that Kira Walsh did with Michael Cox of when she watched the Euros final back with him, Kira Walsh said you know, she she's happy to have the ball in the situation where she's it's uncomfortable. She did that at Manchester City with Ellie Roebuck all the time. She'd receive those passes. And actually she finds it easier when a player is tighter because she can feel them on her back and, and knows when to turn. So I think it's about decision-making, when to go long and, and when to play out from the back. And I think Morgan, Esme Morgan, who played centre-back and, and did a pretty good job, uh, I just felt the ball pace needed to be a bit quicker uh, and just those decisions a bit sharper at times. Well, yeah, I mean, it's definitely going off of what you said. It's definitely easier. You know, sometimes you think if the ball isn't pinged in at you, it's actually it's hard, it's harder when it's a slow running ball to 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 manipulate where the ball is going to go, what the defender is going to do. So it's easier the harder you pass it. It's easier if you can feel that player on top of you. So it's it's all about being brave enough. And are you used to receiving the ball under under pressure? And that's I think the quality of Kira Walsh is that she's used to that. She's she's happy to do that. Is everybody in that England team? So you've got to make sure that everybody's at that same level. And that's where I suppose you have to keep doing that in match situations. You have to keep doing that in training. So if that's the way you want to play, you've got to be brave enough to to accept that. And sometimes there will be risk and sometimes it will go wrong. But you have to sort of take that on, you know, take that on the chin. 
Charlotte, why was this game played in Spain in a 3,000-capacity stadium? I noted that, that, like me, you were very enamoured with Mary Earp's mid-match chat, but we ought not to have been able to hear it because it should have been in a bigger ground with more people than in somewhere more appropriate for a World Cup warm-up, possibly. I think the uh, effects mic was right by Mary Earps. I loved it. I just loved hearing every word Mary Earps was saying and the kind of like good that you'd, you'd get from a player or a coach. It must be very reassuring. But um, to your point, short answer, we don't quite know. Long answer, warm weather. Um, it's quite nice to go out and have those kind of feel-good vibes in a warm weather environment rather than the cold northeast. And it's a, it's a very, the Pinatar uh, Centre is a very regular training facility for teams to use. So for example, Watford's men are going out there next week as well. So I imagine it's, you know, guarantee of, of good facilities while they're out there. Expat community, uh, that might influence um, the fact that they can get the crowd there as well. But yeah, an interesting choice. So it's 25 games unbeaten under Serena Wiegmann now. They've never conceded more than one goal in a game since she's been in charge. Is there a slight concern, Rachel, that England need to be facing more testing opposition before the World Cup? Yeah, you always want to, you know, test yourself against the best. But then, you know, you'd look at Japan and I, I absolutely love the way the Japanese sort of style of football, the way that they play. I actually thought they were pretty poor, to be quite honest. Um, I was a little bit disappointed with, with Japan. But you would say that they are quality opponents. You know, the normal Japan that you're used to playing, the Japan that I've played against, you know, really tough team to, to sort of play against. So, um, But I, I didn't think that they performed anywhere near their, their best. I thought they were quite sloppy, actually, against England. Not to take anything away from England, but... Um, but you do need to play against different opposition that play a different sort of style of football. I mean, you play Japan and the way that they play football and then you play Norway, it's, it's going to be totally different. So I think you do need to test yourself against um, different teams. Obviously, England played against USA. It's, it's, the thing is, you don't know how the other manager and how the other team are looking at the games. Are they going to play their, their first eleven? Are they going to tinker with their squad? So I think you just have to sort of pick the football games in terms of what teams would be like that you might meet in the World Cup. You know, playing a team from, from Africa is always different to playing a team from, from Asia or, or Europe. So I think you, you've, got to try and, you've got to try and mix it up in that way. Uh, well, Beth Mead featured in this game against Japan. She responded to criticism of her comments on the issue of diversity in the England squad. Mead was asked by The Guardian last week whether having only three non-white players in England's Euro 2022 squad was coincidental or down to a specific reason. She said it was completely coincidental, but on Friday seek to clarify her position, saying my values and beliefs are completely different to what was written. It's not a true reflection of me as a person. Uh, Ian Wright revealed that he'd spoken to her about the comments and said I'm very fond of Beth and yes it was a bit disappointing seeing that what was said will obviously stay between us but I think it's a massive moment of reflection and learning for her um Rachel is this just clumsy from from Beth Mead or is it a bit more serious than that do you think it's hard for me to really comment on it because I haven't sometimes when you read something it's different to hearing someone speak and I, I don't really know in what context you meant in terms of like the England players at this moment in time to choose from. There aren't a lot of black and ethnic minority players to choose from. So therefore, you know, looking at there's three within the team, 
you would say, okay, well, those three are, you know, the best players in the country, so that's why they're there. So I don't really know. I didn't hear it, and I, I'm not really sure where she's coming from to be able to to sort of make a judgment. But in terms of knowing Beth Mead, I think she's her character. I think she's a lovely person. So I'm sure if she's saying that she didn't mean and her values are not the same and she didn't mean it in the way that it's come across, you know, I, t- I take that. I take her, you know, what she's saying on face value. Yeah, she's clearly um, not particularly pleased with the way that that came across in the um, in the Guardian piece. What was your take on it, Charlotte? I think it, it's this is not just about Beth Mead. It goes beyond Beth Mead. As Ian Wright said on ITV, it's a systemic problem. And at the moment, we're just dealing with it in incidents. And Flo Lloyd-Hughes, uh, my colleague at The Athletic, wrote saying it, it's acknowledgement that it is crucial, that you know, it's it's not just coincidental that there were only three uh, players of colour in the Euros squad. And we've written about it on The Athletic as well of why the England team is so white. And, you know, the percentage of players of colour has halved since its highest, around 23% in 2007 when Hope Powell was manager. So, you know, I spoke to people from all grassroots levels saying they related to the French team more than the England team. We know that FA are putting measures in place, but is it enough? And as Flo wrote in her article that, you know, no one expects players to have a simple solution to questions put to them about race, but everyone is expected to listen, understand and be open. And especially for me as a a white woman, we have enormous privilege and we should be listening to those who are who have had their experiences and, and raising the issue. Well, you can find out more on this in our past episodes. Recently, we spoke to some of the next generation of black players. We also chatted about it during the Euros uh, with Rachel and Deborah Nelson from Football Beyond Borders and some of our athletic colleagues too. This is the Athletic Women's Football Podcast, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Uh, Now to Morocco. Alistair Howarth joins us because on Sunday it was the final of the African Women's Champions League, the CAFWCL. You might remember Alistair from our chats with him during the Euros. Um, How did the final go then, Alistair? As far as I can see, it was a convincing win for the Moroccan side. Uh, Yes. So, I mean, we're looking forward to this really, really exciting final between holders Asfar Rabat of Morocco playing against Mamelodi Sundowns, who are the the holders of the tournament playing against the hosts Asfar. And it was kind of seen as this rematch between Morocco and South Africa, but, you know, Asfar from Morocco, Sundowns from South Africa, the two teams that met in the AFCON final in the very same stadium in Rabat. Uh, And it was built up to be this incredibly tense final. And it ended up being a bit of a letdown because thanks to VAR, no surprises there, uh, we saw two red cards for Sundowns and Asfar Rabat ran out as 4-0 winners. Uh, so the red cards, were they were they justified? It was 1-0, right, at the, at the time of the first one? Yes, yeah. So Asfar had taken the lead through penalty through Fatima Tagnau. And uh, in the th- and then in just after the half-hour mark, Rhoda Maladzi uh, committed a foul. She was initially given a booking, but kind of on second looks, they gave the foul. And it was one of those very tight ones. Her studs were just up, kind of clipping the ankle of, of the Rabat player. Uh, and, you know, I think in the end it is probably justified. Um, but then they were sent that down to 10 women. They held on for the rest of the half. And then early on in the second half, in the 54th minute, their captain, uh, Zanele Inklapo, 
got a second booking, got sent off, and from the free kick, Asfar scored an excellent routine, I might say. But yeah, then the game was kind of wrapped up there and then two late goals sealed the win. So Asfar getting a hand in, in the final then with those dismissals, but, but over the course of the tournament, do you think they were worthy winners? Uh, I, I think it was it, it was really tight between these two. I mean, Mamelodi Sundowns came into the tournament having not conceded a single goal last year in the in the inaugural tournament, and this year they only let in a goal in their first match on the way to the final, and 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 so they were very very dominant as were Asfar, and so it was kind of very very tight. But I, I think you saw the difference was Asfar kept their cool. It was in front of you know quite a big crowd in in the Stadmulai Hassan at Stadium, and and I think Asfar ended up being the deserved winners. But it really was those kind of tight margins that, that gave them the win. The tournament as a whole, as you mentioned, it's only the second edition of it. How, how does it work? Is it, is it a group stage thing? How many teams are involved and, and how has it been received? Yeah, so it was kind of launched last year, kind of really, really exciting for CAF to finally get kind of a, a women's Champions League off the ground. And it's, it's set up in quite a unique way. So you have regional qualifiers held throughout the year from each of the regions across Africa. And then there's essentially just a one-off uh, eight-team, two-group tournament with semifinals and finals held. Last year it was in Egypt, uh, and this year it was in Morocco. And it and it's kind of really exciting in one sense because you have, you know, a, a really really competitive tournament because you've only got the very best of each region. And even you know quite a lot of the teams like Kasakas Ladies from Ghana, who were in the final last year, didn't even qualify for this tournament. They got knocked out by Bayelsa Queens from Nigeria. So it's been a really really good tournament in terms of the quality on the field and really really competitive football. Um, which I think took a lot of people by surprise who thought the gaps between regions would be kind of too much for a lot of these clubs, but it's kind of turned out to be a real, real success. Excellent. And, and what about in terms of standout players and, and people that we should maybe be looking out for at the World Cup who would have featured in this competition? Yeah, so I mean, if you were watching the, the AFCON over the summer, there was a couple of players, you know, Asfar Rabat are really the basis of this Moroccan side. I think there were almost 13 players from the team were at the AFCON. Um, now, they were missing their captain and the player of the tournament from the AFCON, Ghislaine Shabak, the center midfielder, and a couple other really exciting players. But it was Fatima Tagna who gave them the lead, who is kind of was the player of the tournament, had an excellent AFCON as well. She was in the team of the tournament, really exciting, pacey winger with a kind of wand of a left foot, as well as Ibetsam Chiraidi, who is kind of Rosella Ayan's competition for that center forward spot. Uh, up front for Morocco. And Draidi was t- top goal scorer. She scored a hat trick in the final, six goals in total. Um, as well as then on both the Moroccan and, and uh, uh, South African side for Sundowns, uh, they have keeper Andile Dlamini, who's the captain of, of the Banyana Banyana South African team. And Ermici on the other side for Morocco is the goalkeeper. Elsewhere, uh, the Zambians were represented by a couple players from, from uh, Green Buffaloes. And one to really keep an eye out at this World Cup coming up is Irene Lungu, who's kind of nicknamed the, the computer like uh, her, her fellow teammate from, uh, from the Zambian men's team. And she is really, really exciting, really kind of engine of a midfielder, combative, really talented on the ball. She had a superb WAFCON and kind of is looking to, to step up onto the stage of the World Cup. And you mentioned the World Cup. So there's four African teams qualifying. Would you say Morocco the best place to have a, have a decent run in the tournament? I, I think so. It's a really tricky one because South Africa, in my opinion, played the best football in Africa. They're the best footballing side. Really, really good coach. Desiree Ellis, really, really great FA behind them. But they, they are really side that struggles with the physical aspects of the game. And so when they come up against some of these European teams, you know, I see in their group Sweden and Italy, I think they will struggle elsewhere. Nigeria has a star-studded team by African standards headed by Asisa Oshuala, who missed the WAFCON 
and have always been the traditional heavyweights of African football. Um, but they're in a really tough group with Canada, Australia, and Ireland, and, and as well there's been a lot of question marks over their coaching, over the kind of structure behind the team. They had a really poor AFCON missing out in the semi-final for only the second time not reaching the final. Whereas Morocco have uh, Reynaud Pedros at the head, who has coached Lyon to two titles in, in the Champions League in Europe, an amazing coach. They have a brilliant FA. They've played more friendlies than any other team, I think, in the world um, so far in 2022. So they're really, really putting a lot of resources behind this team to do well. Hi, Alistair. I was just wondering how important this is for players in terms of scouting opportunities. That, that, that is a really good question. And, I, you know, I would like to say it's really, really good. But I, I think I've been, to be honest, quite disappointed in terms of the pickup from from a lot of European clubs looking at African clubs. I think particularly over the AFCON, I wrote in, in my column about the, the AFCON that any team that didn't pick up Fatima Tagnout would be kind of missing an absolute trick because she's so good, but there wasn't much movement. Now, having said that, last year, the player of the tournament, Evelyn Badu, who's a kind of breakout superstar at 19 years old, did get a big move to Sweden and she's playing there now. So there is kind of movement, but I think there's, because the t- tournament's so new, there's not as much eyes on it. And I think, but I think there is a lot of talent there that could be picked up, um, particularly from these kind of bigger sides like Aspar and like Mamelodi Sundowns. Can I just ask, what's it like in terms of like finances for the team to, to go away, to travel to, you know, one location to, to, to play the tournament? Is this like financially, does it work or is this like a strain on, on the teams? Yeah, so it, it's kind of wildly varying, particularly last year, there wasn't much financial support given by CAF to two teams. And so quite a few teams, uh, Vahiga Queens from my own country, Kenya, as well as Hasakas Ladies, who got to the final kind of amateur teams had to raise funds locally to to get there. And it was really difficult for them. And so there is still a kind of a big financial imbalance. There's a lot more money in terms of prize winning, both at the AFCON and for the Champions League. So that that's kind of really, really helped in terms of the financial incentives. But there still is like a massive, massive gap between some of these teams. Say, for instance, Asfar Rabat, they're a fully professional team. Um, you know, Morocco has fully professionalized both its sec- uh, first and second tiers. So they have a lot, a lot of support behind them, as well as some of the other big clubs that are connected with men's clubs across the continent. Mamelodi Sundown's men's team is completely dominant in South Africa right now. Likewise, Simba Queens, who got to the final, they're attached to Simba, uh, Simba Sports Club from Tanzania, who are really dominant side. But then you have some other teams like Determined Girls, who came from Liberia, lost every game, really, really struggled. Um, so, that, so there is a lot of financial burden on these clubs. And, you know, some of them can manage, some of them really struggle. And, and that's the kind of the next step is they need a lot more help financially. Right, Determined Girls is my new favourite name for a football team, <laughs> um, I think. Before we let you go, Alistair, last time we spoke to you, Zambia's star Barbara Banda was, was banned from the Women's Africa Cup of Nations because of apparently failing gender eligibility tests with high testosterone levels. But what's the latest with her? Will she feature at the World Cup, do we know? Yeah, so so it's a bit bit unknown, to be honest. So she, yeah, so real shame because she was kind of expected to be the, the big star of the show and her Zambia side without her got to the semifinals and, you know, with her could only think that, you know, could have won it. But so since then, she has actually featured for Zambia. She played in the Kosafa Cup, which is kind of a yearly cup played uh, between the Southern African countries. So she, she played for Zambia there because the tournament has different gender eligibility rules to to that WAFCON she was able to play. And she herself has said that she will be playing at the World Cup. She's back in China playing for Shanghai Shengli, who she's she's played for uh, previously, just, although I think she was actually hoping to get a move to Europe uh, after that WAFCON. And, and I think, you know, the big reason she didn't was because she 
you know, there was a lot of fears over her eligibility, but she is confident that she will play. I think the, the, the Zambian Federation is quite confident she'll play at the World Cup too. But to be honest, it's kind of, we don't, we aren't 100% sure yet. Uh, listen, if you want to find out more about that, The Athletic's Nick Miller has been writing on it. Head to The Athletic now to check that out. Uh, Alistair, thanks so much for your time today. We'll speak to you soon. Thank you so much, guys. This is The Athletic Women's Football Podcast. Before we jump into what's coming up this week, Charlotte, you caught up with Everton's Tony Duggan about her pregnancy. Really interesting piece. Tell us a little bit about it. Tony was so open and honest uh, about her experience. It involved Greg Sausage Rolls getting out of um, shuttle runs in pre-season training, morning sickness and feigning a back injury. So the one person, perhaps apart from your partner, that you may want to tell as soon as possible is your mum that you're pregnant. But Tony didn't want to do that because she wanted to wait until the 12-week stage um, to make sure that the baby was healthy, considering the high risk of miscarriage. But she was in pre-season training at the time and (laughs) running hard and needed to tell someone at the club. And and that was the team doctor. So the team doctor and the manager knew before her mum. And she was really worried that her mum would find out from someone else that she was pregnant. So uh, she spoke about all those kind of challenging questions of who do you tell, when do you tell, should I be lifting weights, how much training should I be doing, and and actually calling for A, more research to be done in terms of the physiological needs, but B, the support for mothers just to ask those questions. We know that as of this season, players will be paid 100% of their weekly wage uh, when they take maternity leave as well as any other uh, benefits for the first 14 weeks before that reverts back to statutory rate. So that's new into their contracts. Uh, And previously, there had to be a qualifying period for players. So they had to be employed by the club for 26 weeks before being eligible for the statutory minimum. Well, as now, there's no qualifying period. So even though those contract terms have been introduced, Tony's really kind of pushing for more. I think I probably would look back in terms of football at players like Katie Chapman and Mary Phillip, who who both, you know, I remember we were full-time at Fulham when Katie um, was pregnant and watching her train and, you know, go through everything. I think if you're a player that is not a mum, like a lot of the players, you would do exactly what we all did and just sort of went, oh, that's Katie and that's Mary and we just moved on and you don't really think about what support that they need because you're not in that situation and you don't understand and I think it's so different when you are a parent and you've got that child and you go through all these different emotions what what Tony was speaking about so there are people within you know the the backroom staff that really you know uh, maybe have done research on that or are trained in in that way that that need to be supporting the, um, the players and the whole group as well I remember when Katie Chapman I think it was a, a second child was at Arsenal and she was training and none of us wanted to go near her because we knew that she was pregnant, but she was still, she wanted, it was safe for her to, uh, to carry on in terms of the running. Um, you know, she wasn't obviously full contact or anything like that, but we were all like, I, I, I don't want to, because what if you kick a ball and it ricochets off something else and it hits her, someone else and it hits her. And like, there was so much fear. So 
I think there's a lot of there's a lot that still needs to be discussed. So it's really good that Tony's brought this up. And I think, although yeah, we look at you know financially, but emotionally, I think there needs to be more support for obviously the player that's pregnant, but also for the other players to understand what that player might be going through and and how they need to to support that player and and, and support themselves. Rachel, when you were playing, did did you ever feel any any pressure either? blatantly or subtly to to not get pregnant or or was it something that was not really talked about by coaches and and staff at the club no I don't think it was something that was really talked about but it's kind of like as a player you just obviously you want to play you want to play every game and it's like well if you get pregnant it's I don't know it's not the same obviously but it's in terms of like doing your ACL you're out for nine months and you know no one wants to take a season out so and also being if you're at the top of the well, whatever level you're at the top of your level though you're competitive and you know that if you take a season out someone else is is getting that space somebody else you're playing catch up so um you know I think there's a lot of different emotions and also there wasn't the support in terms of people being able to to understand if you were you know if you were ready to to have a family then how is that going to impact life then after you know when you're coming back or even these are still questions that I ask and I don't know the answer to now like once a player has their child you know if if they're breastfeeding if you're in if you're in the training ground is there a is there a place that they can go in a room that they can go and breastfeed in if you need to feed in in, in a team meeting is everybody comfortable with someone breastfeeding there? Because it's, it's just a normal thing. But some people might be uncomfortable. Some The player might feel uncomfortable or the manager. So all these things I, I wonder. And also, you know, in terms of bringing your child into the training ground um, and away games, you know, is your baby allowed to travel? Or I know in America, and I always remember when we were going to the World Cup, I think it was in China, obviously I roomed with Mary Phillip who had uh, who had two children and you know i think support from her family was um was the biggest thing for her because i don't think as a football team uh, even as players i don't think we supported her anywhere near to the amount that we should have but like i said before i don't think it's something that we really thought of because we weren't in that situation we didn't understand but then you'd look at the usa national team who their kids would be with them there would be like a nanny and for me if you've got a happy person who's there, they, you know, they, their child is safe and they're happy with the, the, the environment that they're in, you're going to have a happy player. So I don't know what it's like. I know I've, I've read stuff about Emma Mitch- oh, sorry, Emma McCandy, you know, going away with the Scotland squad and bringing her daughter. And I, I just think that that's how it, how it should be. But I don't know if that's, you know, for a, for a WSL team, is that the norm? You know, the, so there's so many questions that I kind of, I'm sort of wondering about and also you know on Sunday I went to watch Brentford Brentford women versus uh, Watford ladies development team down at they played their first match at um, I think it's called the GTEC community stadium the men's ground fantastic match but once I got down onto the pitch and was sort of speaking to the girls about how they were feeling I noticed two of their players were pregnant and I was like well I hope that there's support for them when they're coming back because they're amateur footballers, you know, support for them if they're training in the evenings because mentally those players would probably really need that, you know, to, 
you lose your identity kind of once you once you've had a baby you, you're just mum but you know for those players wanting to go back into football and wanting to continue their career you know I really hope that the, the club sort of supports and that's something that I was talking to to their club about is that you know how are you going to support these players because they're not getting paid to do this they're amateurs but they really will need the support of the club to feel welcome back in and and feel you know part of football again and and that they have a place within football because I think that's the biggest thing that we should show every every person watching that you know you you can be a mother and play football you can be whatever you want and you know you know we look at diversity and we look at all these other things we need to showcase and we need to have it out there that that people can see uh, different people playing and different people in different scenarios and and relate to that at the moment I'm not quite sure we still do um, on the pregnancy side of things. Mm. Well, best of luck to Tony Duggan. And we'll turn our attention to the weekend's game. Duggan's Everton hosting Manchester City in the WSL. But the big match in the league sees Arsenal host Manchester United. Meanwhile, it is Chelsea against Tottenham. Those games at the Emirates and Stamford Bridge, respectively. Uh, We'll start with United Charlotte. Pretty convincingly beaten by Chelsea before the break. Russo coming back into form for for United, but it's going to be really interesting to see how they got on in this game after that setback, having having been flawless up until that point. I thought United were disappointing, uh, actually, against Chelsea. I thought Russo played well and took a goal really well, but United had possession without really any penetration or creativity, you know, they had 52% possession against Chelsea's 48. You see a player like Leah Golton, who loves 1v1s, running at defenders, using her pace, but that style doesn't really suit her. They're not putting balls forward in behind the defence like Russo's uh, used to with England. Russo you know, often had to drop deep against Chelsea, so it will be an interesting one. But yeah, United have to respond from their defeat against Chelsea. Arsenal firm favourites for you, Rachel? <laughs> Can't really say um, no, can you? <laughs> no, <laughs> uh, no I, th- I think so. I think, you know, the fact that it's obviously Arsenal's home game is at the Emirates. Um, I think Arsenal are now used to playing at the Emirates in terms of what that means with the crowd and the pressure. Um, I think they use that as a kind of, well, they look like they thrive off that that environment. So, um, yeah, and I, but I think, I suppose it is their biggest test. You know, they've played and they've won all these games, but they haven't really played anyone of, of, of sort of, well, the top three, top four. So, um, so yeah, it will be a, a big test against Manchester United, but I think they'll feel confident and feel that they can, can go and get a wing. I, I think, you know, I looked at the Man United-Chelsea game, just just mistakes. I think you can't give a team like Chelsea, can't give them anything. And then, you, you, you know, you make mistakes like that. They're going to punish you. And that, for me, was probably one of the big, biggest things about Manchester United is that you need to cut those out because you're kind of nearly there. I quite like, I like the way that they play football. But once you, once you give Chelsea those opportunities, then mentally you've got to be strong and you've got to, You've got to be really be resilient and you're playing against a top-class side in Chelsea who they're kind of known for that now. You're just always making the game more difficult for yourselves. 
So Chelsea then themselves, Charlotte, hosting Spurs at Stamford Bridge. They did the same thing on the opening day of the 2019-20 season as well, uh, if I remember rightly. This is a rearranged game. I mean, part of you thinks, well, are Chelsea at a disadvantage not playing at Kingsmeadow because it's such a fortress for them? But then I read today that the game on, on the weekend is sold out. So maybe that's not going to be a factor. It's interesting, isn't it? Chelsea are also playing PSG, their Champions League game at Stamford Bridge as well. And you do think whether it gives the away team a bit of more an advantage than if they were playing at Kings Meadow, because you can really create that hostile, kind of gritty, uh, the pitch is narrower at Kings Meadow. I was even speaking to people from PSG and they said the last time they visited Kings Meadow, they hated it because of the changing rooms. And obviously it's not as plush um, uh, Stamford Bridge, but I think, you know, Chelsea are clear favourites um, for this game against Spurs and they'll enjoy the crowd support as well. Maybe more significant than where the game's being played, Rachel, is, is who's going to be playing in it. I know that Penilla Harder picked up a hamstring injury on international duty, probably won't play in this game. And you got the likes of Kurt Eriksson, Musevic, Kanarid have all had to travel back from Australia. Chelsea have often struggled in, in games immediately following international breaks. So that might be a factor here in Spurs' favour. Yeah, I think, you know, international breaks always one that you've got to look at where your players are travelling back from. Obviously, you've got to then a quick changeover into what you were doing with your international team back to your, your club mindset. But I think equally, you know, Tottenham would have some players that would have would have been away, would have had some travelling to do as well. I just think, for me, I'm going back to when I watched Tottenham Arsenal at the Emirates and I, I, I just thought... Arsenal were really, you could see that they were lifted by the crowd and I felt that Tottenham really felt the pressure. So I wonder whether playing at Stamford Bridge actually does maybe put a bit more pressure on Tottenham. I didn't think that Tottenham, when they played against Arsenal, I thought they gave them way too much respect and and, and didn't look like the Tottenham team that I was expecting to see. I wonder what Tottenham team will turn up against Chelsea. So for me, it's about how are Tottenham going to play and what are they going to do? Because if, if it's the same as the Arsenal game, I think it's a Chelsea win. We'll find out, I guess. Um, clubs making the most of their men's teams being off for the World Cup by playing these games in the men's stadium. The World Cup starts on Sunday. Lotta Moy won't be watching it. She said, as an England team, we've all got strong values. A lot of those values aren't reflected in the way that we see it in Qatar she, she's right, Charlotte, isn't she? Basically, there's a lot of people who haven't got much interest in this World Cup because of that. But it's an opportunity for, for the WSL to, it's obviously going to have increased visibility and, and maybe pick up some new followers during this period for people who are looking for, for some football that's a little bit more palatable than, than what we'll see in the Middle East. Yet again, Lotta Wiebemoy has spoken very well on an issue like this. It's a brilliant opportunity for the WSL to capitalise um, during that break, especially considering there won't be any domestic Premier League action. But, you know, I'm heading out to Qatar uh, for the Athletic and you have to hold both the football and the human rights issues, LGBTQ+, women's rights issues in both hands. So, yeah, hats off again to Lotta Moy, but hopefully uh, a shop window for the WSL. It's impressive for, for players to speak out on issues like this, I think, Rachel, because it's not particularly easy. Are you, are you feeling like you normally would ahead of a World Cup or, or is it leaving a bit of a bad taste in your mouth? Do you know what? I heard um, Jurgen Klopp speak about this 
And I totally agreed with Eddie where that he says, now's not the time to speak. We should have been doing it when it was picked because we all knew it was wrong. So for me, I think it is what it is. Do I necessarily agree with everything? No. But do I necessarily agree with everything that goes on in this country and the way that the, the problems that we have, you know, you, you asked me earlier about Beth Mead and the diversity and regardless of what Beth said, we have a massive problem with the lack of black players and how that's going to change. I know people are trying to change things, but we need to give more opportunities. So I think there's a lot of things. So it's for me, it's about call it out when it's, when it's there. Is it necessarily the players that need to do that? I'm not so sure. Obviously, media has, has a lot to do with it. The people that are, you know, sponsoring and, and, and backing and, and the governing body. So I'm not a politician. I don't know all that. But um, I did listen to Jürgen Klopp and I did feel that I agreed with, with what he said. Yeah, pretty spot on. Well, the WSL and the Women's Champions League continuing throughout the duration of the Men's World Cup. So plenty of good quality women's football to look forward to over the next few weeks. That's all we have time for on this week's Athletic Women's Football Podcast today. Though many thanks to Alistair for joining us earlier and to Rachel and Charlotte too, and to you for listening, of course. Keep the comments coming on social media at The Athletic FC and at Offside Will Pod. Always great to hear your thoughts. But for now, from all of us, it's goodbye. The Athletic.